Hi there, welcome back. Uh, In this episode, we're continuing to look at William Waldron's book, Making Sense of Mind Only. This is the second episode in which we're studying this book. And we're looking at the early Buddhist background that informs the Yogacara perspective, particularly by looking at conditionality or anatman, no fixed self. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So for this week, we've read the first chapter of Making Sense of Mind Only, uh, which is called Early Buddhism. Uh, But really, I mean, the chapter focuses primarily on a consideration of dependent origination uh, and how that uh, plays out in relation to various other teachings, including uh, the five skandhas, uh, anatman, and karma. Uh, and so, from what I can make out, his intention is to create the context uh, for why and how yoga chara uh, arose and the problems that it was responding to. And so, he's taking this sort of historical uh, perspective of beginning at the beginning uh, with uh, yeah the early Buddhist teachings. And it, it's interesting and, I suppose, affirming that he determines dependent origination to be the primary, the, the primary kind of intellectual or conceptual early Buddhist formulation. Uh, dis- agree or disagree, add or subtract. Um, the, the only thing I would, I would add to what, what you said, which is, which is really an excellent in- introduction to this chapter, is that he also talks about the, uh, the middle way, which is a, a very important uh, topic. And that will undoubtedly, he'll come back to talking about this when he's talking about the uh, the uh, three swabhava doctrine of yogachara which is um and and, and this this theme of course of, of the middle way is is very important in um mahayana and madhyamaka and then the um the two truths right yeah 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 and he, yeah, he actually covers quite uh, now you mention it he does cover quite a few doctrines because he also touches on the Four Noble Truths. Uh, right. I think some of the stuff that was very familiar to me, I skipped over a little bit, which is probably why I didn't include that level of detail in my summary. But you're right, he does go into the Two Truths, which was one of the bits that more captured my attention, if I'm honest. And I hadn't realized that that comes up in the questions of King Melinda, um, that there's a, a version of it there which is obviously later developed in Majamaka, particularly in the Muda Majamaka Karika. Mm-hmm. So there's really a, a, a lot of material in this. And as you say, it's um, he's presenting this largely as a way of pre- providing context for the further development of these ideas or, or just um, perhaps a different way of uh, focusing on these same themes that, that we find in, in uh, Yogacara um, literature, which is, and, and I think that's something that's important about the, the way that he's doing this is that um, his approach, I think, provides a kind of corrective to the to the notion that, that really all you need is Mahayana and, and, that, and that early Buddhism is something a little bit more um, elementary or not capable of leading to the final goal and that sort of thing. And I think that that um, that, that Waldron is, is not going to be very sympathetic to that particular dichotomy. And in, 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 I mean, in, in some treatments, uh, it's almost as if there's a, as if Yogacara simply replaces um, uh, or, or provides 
such a um, a richer way of talking about these themes that, that you no longer need to really look at the uh, early literature at all. Um, and and, yeah. and I think particularly in in, in Tri Ratna um, that at least in the the way that I understand the kind of program of of Tri Ratna is that Tri Ratna also has takes seriously all of these different schools of Buddhism and and doesn't necessarily despite despite what Sangharakshita said in his in his very early writings where where he still uses terms like Hinayana um aside from that I think that the spirit of Tri Ratna is, is one that embraces all of these different um schools of Buddhism in, in yeah I mean it, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that and uh... A lot of people in our order still make use of this language of Hinayana and Mahayana, which makes me quite uncomfortable, really, when I hear that, because it, it feels very much like a, a value judgment or a hierarchical judgment. Hmm. Uh, and they may not always mean that, uh, although I think quite often they do. Um, and you're right in saying that in some of his writings, uh, Sangrachta was very much... Um, adopting that language, particularly that comes from the Tibetan tradition of the, you know, Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. But actually, there are a number of places where he recognizes that that isn't an appropriate way to talk about the different uh, Buddhist traditions, because they aren't hierarchically organized in the way that that model implies. Uh, and in some respects, maybe you could even argue that his model is the opposite. That is to say that early Buddhism is the, is the highest point in the hierarchy. Um, because he, he's certainly doctrinally speaking. Anyway, I, I think perhaps with the with the exception of the Bodhisattva ideal, I think he would say that the primary elements or the most important element in Buddhist ideas, we find them or certainly we can trace them back uh, to the early Buddhist teachings. Uh, and this was one of his key emphases going back to what he called basic Buddhism. Right. Seeing... Mahayana and Vajrayana and whatever whatever else as um, developing on the basis of that, either extending ideas or responding to ideas uh, much later on. And I, uh, I'm still thinking about this as I'm speaking, but I, I'd like to suggest that the one thing that he really thinks isn't perhaps properly articulated or isn't really very evident in the early Buddhist tradition is the is is the Bodhisattva ideal which he strongly emphasizes um, right. uh, which he came across in uh, Mahayana Buddhism so obviously he does make use of concepts like shunyata certain yogacara concepts but very often he'll then relate them back uh, to earlier uh, concepts, particularly dependent origination, or, you know, say the idea of shunyata, relating that back to anatman or dependent origination again. Um, so, yeah, so I think it is good for us to be very attentive to these tendencies to create hierarchies without perhaps being very uh, precise about what we're doing. Right. So, um, so something else that, that, that I would um, say about Waldron's presentation here that I appreciate is that he's he's making the he, he actually says explicitly at some point that that uh, we shouldn't understand the doctrines of Buddhism as being a creed you know that if you you, you have to believe these things and if you don't believe these things then you're not a Buddhist you know? yeah. so it's, it's not it's not it's not in any sense a um, a creedal formula and he also emphasizes that it's that the um the project of buddhism if i can put it in that way is is a pragmatic one of dealing with 
um, dealing with dissatisfaction and and um, and, and discovering the, the root causes of that. In con, so it's pragmatic in nature. In contrast to its being um, an ontological, you know, a set of ontological statements about what is and what isn't. Um, and even when when we get to discussing the the two truths, it's not so that there's one a higher and a lower ontological truth, but there's there are really ways of approaching things that that aren't really useful in the, in the program of eliminating suffering and other things that are and um yeah. so, so so and 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 also that kind of the emphasis on on the, the pragmatic aspect of buddhism um makes the epistemological dimension of, of buddhism somewhat less less focused than than uh, than it would be in in some some writings including a lot of mine <laughs> where I've, I've put a lot more emphasis on, on epistemology. Okay. Well, I'm very much in agreement with that emphasis on uh, pragmatic soteriology, if I can call it that. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm pleased that you uh, you reminded us of that, because actually I was going to say that I felt that there were some tendencies in the essay towards kind of philosophizing, um, but your you're right but he does bring it back to uh, to something pragmatic but it's easy i think it's very easy to start losing sight of that uh, and i think to to take the example say of anartman which he goes into in quite a bit of detail it's like it seems always important to me to ask well what's this for you know what why why did the buddha suggest that we think in those terms as opposed to other terms or perhaps to put it in another way what you know what is the problem of atman um and i don't know whether it actually goes into that very much actually um you know what why is it problematic uh, let, let me put it this way why is it problematic to think in terms of an atman uh, right. presumably the answer must be that thinking that way leads to suffering and not to liberation but then so then it's it will be interesting to investigate exactly how does thinking in terms of Atman, Atman lead to suffering and that's where I'm not so sure or he certainly doesn't articulate that and often I don't know how well that is articulated mm-hmm yeah um before we before we dive into the four noble truths as he presents them yeah. right at the end of this sort of opening um to this chapter um he he actually says pretty explicitly what we've already been talking about which is sort of why it is that we're looking at this at these early buddhist texts why are we looking at the pali canon and uh, right towards the end this is on page 22 he says if we overlook these early discourses we could easily lose sight of this overwhelming continuity and end up focusing instead on yogachar's innovative doctrines as if they did not arise out of and depend upon their own larger historical and doctrinal context so we so so we really do have um an, in, a, in a way he's he notice he uses the words they did not arise out of out, out of and depend upon so he's talking about dependent origination even in the context of of how yogachara came to be yeah yeah i i really really like that the fact that he's actually using uh the sort of most fund, fundamental buddhist framework if you like to analyze the evolution of buddhism itself which is right. uh, really uh, uh, works really well and is is also convincing um, and you know invites us not to consider uh, ideas and schools in isolation um, 
or, in, or properly invites us to recognize that we can only really make sense of what they're saying if we know uh, how they're related to other teachings that went before, because they're part of a conversation, let's say, or, or they're dependently ar arisen, to, to speak more technically. Right. Well, do, would you like to dive into the Four Noble Truths as he presents them? Um, okay, I'd probably have to admit that I passed over that pretty quickly, partly because I guess I've spent a lot of time thinking about them recently. But yeah, uh, to, go, to go back to something that, that you said a little before, is one of his main emphases is, is to want to indicate that they're not just simply absolute truths that we're supposed to believe. That isn't their purpose. Um, right. In, in my language, that their, their purpose is they're, they're transformative beliefs, basically. They're 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 frames of reference that invite us to transform our habits, our way of looking uh, at ourselves and at the world. So, so I agree with that, and I think that's important. As you said, you know, it's not a credo. Yeah, he 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 leaves he um, articulates that particularly clearly in in a footnote. Um, footnote number sixteen on page twenty three, where he says um, he actually is is quoting Rupert uh, Gethin, right. his 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 nineteen ninety eight book, and uh, and so Gethin says the temptation to understand these four truths as functioning as a kind of Buddhist creed should be resisted. They do not present truth claims that one must intellectually assent to on becoming a Buddhist. Part of the problem here is the word truth. The very, the, the, the word satya or satya in Pali can certainly mean truth, but it might equally be rendered as real or actual thing. That is, we are not dealing here with propositional truths with which we must either agree or disagree, but with four true things or realities whose natures we are told the Buddhist, the Buddha finally understood on the right on the night of his awakening. The teachings of the Buddha thus state that suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the path to its cessation are realities which we fail to see as they are. And this is as true for the Buddhist as for the non-Buddhist. Um, yeah, and, 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 and I think everything else that he, that he says about the Four Noble Truths is, as you say, um, pretty well, well mapped out territory um, that we probably don't have to go into in any, in any great detail. Um, and 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 it's it's helpful to remember, I guess, that that um, well, the Waldron is writing. It seems to be writing this book for the um, the general reader, and so who may not be familiar at all with Buddhism. But he's also present presenting this book for people who are familiar with Buddhism and who have maybe um, misconceptions about things, and people who have fallen into the to the habit of thinking of the Four Noble Truths or other doctrines of Buddhism as 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 creed. That, uh, that that should be assented to. Um, yeah, so it's interesting that he begins with uh, the Four Noble Truths and then goes on to dependent origination. Uh, Bante actually does it the other way around. Um, so he recognizes that the all-inclusive model, if you like, is uh, dependent origination. And the Four Noble Truths is a specific application of that. Uh, I don't know whether, uh, well, I don't think that Waldron clearly spells that out. Uh, but anyway, after having, he because he considers the Four Noble Truths and then very briefly mentions the uh, the three Lakshanas, very, very briefly. Right. Uh, and then, uh, but then he, he, he goes on to have a, 
a separate section in which he introduces uh, dependent origination uh, and introduces one of the, the famous formulations of it when this is that comes to be with the arising of this that arises when this is not that does not come to be with the cessation of this that ceases right yeah that from the um Madhyam Nikaya quotes that Madhyam Nikaya formula um and he begins this section on dependent arising which has a, you might say a sub a subtitle um to that heading as identifying patterns of interaction um and so so here he's the general idea that he's putting across independent origination is that we're not talking about the causality of things, but more the interrelation of um, of events that you have uh, a certain kind of event that comes along that arises. And that event wouldn't have arisen had it not been for certain conditions being in place. And yeah. those themselves are events. And also, we're, we're not we're not talking about uh, an ontological explanation, but more a phenomenological description. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, 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 you know, you could even you could perhaps say that, um, that um, that we're talking about the interrelations of, of experiences. That would be a kind of a phenomenological approach. We're really in the realm of um, experiences. And certain experiences arise depending on prior, our, our, our reactions perhaps to prior ex experiences. Some of this, some of this comes out a, a little bit more when he is talking about the um, the um, the skandhas. So in the, in this chapter, um, he he begins it be, begins. I mean, this section, I should say, he begins this section by saying these critical analyses expressing what the world lacks, namely permanence, unchanging essences, and so on, are complemented by the constructive work of explaining how we actually function without unchanging identities and. You were talking earlier about about Atman, about self, and I think that I think it's important to be clear about what exactly is being negated when we negate the Atman, and I think that it that it really is seeing the Atman as something which is a permanent, unchanging essence that is the core of our being, out of which the more um, well you could. If you're talking in terms of the self being an unchanging essence, then all of the things that we experience, the ideas we have, the things we say are all accidents, accidental properties that are associated with that unchanging essence. And that way of looking at things is not at all the way that, that it's presented in Buddhism. And I think that this is partly what he's what he's trying to, to emphasize. Um, yeah. And well, I mean, I'll, I'll add to that, that uh, in the seminar that I've been editing on outlines of Mahayana Buddhism, this is in 1974, I think, uh, Sangharaksta suggests that maybe the idea of an Atman isn't relevant to people these days, uh, because actually it's a very particular response to a particular obstacle or a particular fixed view that existed uh, at that time. Yeah. Uh, and, and, he points out that it can easily uh, communicate a very negative idea about how Buddhism conceives of the human being, uh, particularly when people say things like there is no self. Um, right. Uh, people, I think, can quite readily start to think that what that's saying is that somehow they're deluded about 
being here you know that that they, they you know they're not really here and their idea that they're here is is deluded and it kind of could get a bit para paranoid even i think uh, uh, that that form of thinking yes and he and he uh, says that actually what the anatment teaching is trying to communicate is that we can grow and develop that that's how he puts it at least in that in that seminar right uh, right so it is it's not just about uh it, it, it doesn't have a negative intention. So, it, you know, it doesn't have the intention of saying, well, you know, you thought you were somebody and actually you're nobody. Uh, you're not, it's actually wanting to say that if you think that you can't change, that's not true. You can change, you can grow and develop. And put like that, it seems very, very positive. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and in, in fact, in, in <clears throat> one of the things that I've um, spent quite a bit of my time studying is, is philosophers in the, um, well, the epistemological tradition, I guess, of, of, of Buddhism in, in India, 6th and 7th century thinkers, and one of them is Dharmakirti. <clears throat> and Dharmakirti and then in the later philosophers who of india who uh, who follow his his approach um make exactly that point that you know it's it's what 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 is the harm in believing in atman and the and the harm is <clears throat> that if we think of atman as being a fixed entity that never changes, then the entire program of um, changing our character, uh, improving our lives in any way, becomes impossible even to think about. So it really is um, the thing that's being negated is 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 this static view of of a person. And I I think that particularly um, when we're when we're looking at things as Waldron does through through the lens of therapeutic psychology um, of sort of clinical clinical psychology the um, it's 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 important to realize that in the, in that context having a sense of self is very important and and so in the in, in it, it, as as you were reporting Sangharaksha says when we're talking about having a sense of self the sense of self that we have a, a a clear you know a clearer and clearer picture of through therapy is really this very dynamic set of characteristics that are part of our experience and not at all a fixed entity yeah so, right. yeah so if, if it weren't for the fact that there had been people in india who did talk about the atman as something which is permanent you know, the, the, Buddhism never would have had to come up with a notion of an Atman at all. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my intuition is that often the the implications of an Atman are, are overstated, uh, or they're, let, perhaps to put that in a different way, they're overly characterized in nihilistic terms. Um, so in other words, it's very much seen as the negation of a self rather than the idea that you've just proposed, which I would describe as something like a very dynamic idea of, of the self. Um, uh, and if we consider some of the images that he looks at, one of them is a river, for instance. The right. fact that, that a river has no permanent essence doesn't then mean we say there is no river. Exactly. But there's still a river there. Uh, but we see that it's a very dynamic thing. What the river is, it's constantly changing, and that. So that's where I think that the, the a mistake comes in. So we, from from denying there being anything thick, it almost seems to move on to saying then that there isn't anything, uh, which right. I I just 
to me, I just can't really make sense of that way of talking. And it doesn't really, it doesn't really very, it's not very helpful to me to say that I don't have a self. Uh, yeah, clearly it all depends on how you define self, right? But the capacity to say, identify myself as a person means things like I can take responsibility for my actions, uh, uh, for example, uh, I can um, I can remember that um, I don't know I've got certain tasks to do because they're the tasks that have been assigned to me, and right. so on and so forth. You know that there, there are all kinds of uh, ways in which being able to say something like you know I am a person uh, I, I is actually really really helpful. Um, yeah, which is not to deny that it can have problems too. I'm, I'm not denying that, but I, I'm I'm more arguing against the other extreme, which seems to me to be the, the sort of complete negation of a self, which I think we seem to be agreeing, and Nartman isn't saying that. Yes, yeah. And a, a, another tendency that I've, I've seen in, um, among modern, modern Buddhists, probably more Western Buddhists than, than Asian Buddhists, is to somehow equate Atman with ego. Oh, right, and, yeah, and, um, yeah. Yeah, that also in psychological terms yeah. would be a mistake, I think, because again, it's important. The ego is actually, as it's as it's discussed by Freud and Jung, anyway, is actually very important. Um, but it's also blind. It's 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 blind to um, other dimensions of our of our psychological makeup. Yeah. The, and the introduce the introduction, sorry, the word ego in relation to Altman is also very confusing because people often use it to mean someone who's self-centered. Yes. Uh, that's what they mean. Um, and when they talk about, say, something feeding your ego, uh, what they mean is something that feeds your sense of self-importance uh, or your superiority or something like that, which is not what the ego is in psychological terms i've understood yeah right i mean i think there's a there's a tendency to to think that if you uh, yeah exactly the, those kinds of um those kinds of images come into people's minds and they don't they don't necessarily well i think they they, they associate having an ego with being narcissistic you know um but in in psychology insofar as there are people who still use terms like ego within psychology, which I guess they do in Freudian and Jungian circles. Um, the, the, the ego is, is actually one's sense of who one is. And in both Freud and Jung, one's sense of who one is is always much more limited than the totality of what one really is. Mm. So, so that um, I mean, the whole notion of the of the unconscious, in a way, is that we have these psychologically dynamic aspects of our being that take the our sense of who we are by surprise. So, I mean, if if you identify yourself as a Buddhist, um, you may find yourself being surprised when you're acting in non-Buddhist ways or having non-Buddhist thoughts. You know, um, I had something come up in a study group the other day about. Uh, ego and uh, so i'm studying the essay 43 years ago uh, by sangharachita with a group of people and he's reflecting on his bhikkhu ordination and he says something afterward, afterwards that he felt uh, like affirmed and accepted by the buddhist community uh, uh, accepted as a buddhist by the, the the buddhist community and one of the people was saying something like um uh 
isn't that uh, isn't that sort of egotistical to feel affirmed and accepted? You know that that and uh, I, I mean I I found it a bit of a strange comment at first, and I couldn't really make sense of it, but. Um, behind it seems to be the idea that human beings don't require any kind of um, confirmation or affirmation as to their identity or their their um, things that they've done that that they're proud of, and it, it seemed quite a it seemed very cold actually, um, but 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 it also seemed like it was arising from a certain idea about anatman as well. Um, and uh, well, I put it out there to see if you've got anything to say in response to help me unpick it a bit more. Yeah, I think I think I think that uh, that we're 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 both in agreement with the general way that Waldron is presenting this, and it and it seems to me that there is a, a lot of um, a lot of overlap with um, what Sangharaksha says. And I think something else that I understand you to be saying is that there are among the followers of Sangharaksha a number of people who have kind of, um, well, are, are not understanding things in, in the way that Sangharaksha himself understood them, are, not, are, are placing a, diff, a kind of a different emphasis. And, and I think especially, as you, as you pointed out, around the notion of, of self and ego, there's a lot of confusion. Yeah, so it seemed to be like the, the person was saying something like, one shouldn't in any way look for affirmation from anybody ever, uh, because that feeds your ego. Right. And I just, wow. Uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe for the Buddha it was like that. But um, one of the things I said in response was that we need to remember that we're not independent entities and that our sense of our own identity is related to how other people relate to us. Um, so if other people affirm our Buddhist identity, it's easier for us to kind of inhabit that or, or to for that to be real for us. And I mean, I think she was... She liked that answer, uh, but it, the, the idea seemed to be almost that a Buddhist should be totally impervious to any kind of um, appreciation or criticism or whatever. Um, and I, I find it hard to believe that even the Buddha could be like that. Uh, may, maybe, maybe, but certainly anyone short of the Buddha, uh, I would imagine, uh, is at least in need of some level of supportive conditions let's say to to uh to well i maybe the stream entrant i don't know but anyway in short it seems to me to be a very very positive thing uh to have your buddhist identity affirmed by others that is my main point really and that's a very necessary thing if one's really gonna move forward uh, as a buddhist I would say. Yeah, you know, th this reminds me of the the the, the, uh, the Kalama Sutta, which a, a great a great many Western Buddhists um, cite and stop at at the you know the the uh, the warning that you shouldn't take anything to be true simply because you've heard someone say it and and, and all of these things. Um, even, but what people very often don't cite is the rest of what it says in the Kalama Sutta, which is you should you should believe that which is in conformity with what wise people believe, what good people believe, um, and and so just, you know seeking the approval of um, some people may not be a very good idea, but seeking the 
the approval of people who are good mentors is extremely important, as you were saying. And I mean, I, I think, it, in, in fact, I would even say that it's that it's indispensable to making any kind of progress on the, on the path. I mean, I think you really must take seriously both the praise and the criticism, or the affirmation, or put it that way, the the affirmation and the criticism of um, of wise mentors. Yeah, I mean, going back to you know this comment, um, I suppose uh, what Bante was putting forward in in his essay was that he was consciously adopting and having affirmed a Buddhist identity, right? The fact that he was a Buddhist. Um, and I'm guessing that the the person was thinking, but if he's got if if there is no self, what you know, what does that mean? Uh, right. What does it mean to be a, a Buddhist if you if if there's no self that if you like can be a Buddhist? Um, and it goes back to what we were saying before, I think, about a, a sort of um, an overclaiming of the of the scope, I suppose, of the the, the notion of anatman. Um, right. Yeah. Because actually, if you think if if we come back to the idea of dependent origination uh, and that and that we can grow and evolve, then actually it becomes clear that an important condition uh, for our uh, development is the the, the positive imp- the positive positively embracing an identity as Bud- as a Buddhist because that. That indicates the direction in which we're going to go, and it's actually very necessary to do right. that. You know, it it, um, it may be um, interesting to to take a look at these what um, Waldron is calling thought exercises, which come up in the context of his discussion of uh, the the. Uh, Questions of Melinda. Yeah. You mentioned one of them already, the, the thought exercise of, of the river. And um and and th- this is well, it may be it may be worth looking at this quotation from the questions of Melinda, King King Melinda, when Nagasena asks uh, Melinda, how did how did how did the river come into being? What conditions keep it going, and what is a river? And then the the um, the uh, answer is, when it's raining, by what means may the water run away? It might run away by means of some slope, but sire, if it continued to rain, by what means would that later later amount of water run away? It would take the same course as earlier water. Then, sire, does the earlier water instruct the latter, the later, saying? you run away by the same course as I do? <laughs> or does the later water instruct the earlier saying, I will also run away by the same course as you will take? And, and, and the king says, no reverence, sir, there's no conversation between them. They run away because there's a slope. So it's sort of um, the the idea, the, the very idea of what we call a river is, is that there's an accumulation of water which is flowing within a channel. The channel has been made by previous water flowing there. None of that would happen if, if you didn't have, you wouldn't have a river if you didn't have a channel, and you wouldn't have a channel if you didn't have a river that had flown through it, flowed through it before. And so so the um, the all of these things are are interconnected, and then um, but there is a river. Sorry, there is a river though. There is a river. There is a uh, river, or at least it. You know, it wouldn't make sense to say that there isn't one. Right. Let's say, um, yeah. 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 So you know, as 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 uh, as Waldron says, using the nouns. To, to, um, such as river or something like that to refer to refer to things is just a shorthand way to re, to refer not not to real permanent entities or agents but to patterns right. of interactive 
processes whose persistence over time we tend to mistake as separate or permanent. That is, we tend to think of processes as things. We thingify or reify them. On the other hand, when we view the world and our experience in terms of dependent arising, we see them as mutually conditioning, interactive processes to which we give names. That is, we designate them as such for our own convenience. So, so that's, um, it, 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 as you were saying, it, it, it's, it's, it's really important to realize that um, that there is a phenomenon about which we find ourselves thinking, you know, uh, when you ponder what a river is. Um, I, 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 I don't know how many people would make the mistake of thinking that a river is is a permanent entity. And, and that's, mm. in, a, in a way, the, yeah. the, the importance of talking about the river. I mean, no, nobody nobody would, would really deny that there is a river, but also people wouldn't, nobody would look at a river and think this has always been here and it always will be here. Because if you have any familiarity with rivers, you know that there are times when there's a lot of water in them and times when there's not very much water in them, you know. Um, That's interesting because people, you may even still talk about a river when the river is not there. Right. That is to say in the summer when there's no rain. Right. Uh, uh, well, certainly, um, well, in, in Mexico, you've got the concept of arroyo. Yes. Uh, which is a, a dry riverbed. Um, right which is basically just a piece of land then, isn't it? Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. the river isn't there. Yeah. <laughs> but you have the idea of the absence of the river. Uh, and that's what gives meaning to what an arroyo is, the fact that the river isn't there. Yeah, but, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, but we'll come back, presumably, when it rains a lot. Yeah, yeah so arroyo is, is uh, simultaneously a, 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 an indication that there has been a river there, and it's also an indication that, given the right circumstances, a river may come there again. But it's, yeah. it's yeah. a potential potential uh, um, location for for a river but yeah it, it's I, I think I think it really is a, a very useful metaphor so there have been times when I've actually done um, um, boating on rivers and and uh, especially rivers in the western United States have a lot of um, rapids and currents and you know things and, and you disregard those at your peril you just have to be really aware and, and I, I remember I used to think about this um, in sort of Buddhist terms, like what exactly is a current? You know, it, wow. it's, you know, yeah. you can't sort of think yeah. of a current as yeah. as a thing exactly. It's something that happens when water is flowing, um, and so it's dependent on not only the water being flow, flowing, but the water flowing over certain kinds of um, configurations in the underlying riverbed. Um, and you you just have to take these things seriously. And yet, if you start thinking in ontological terms, it just gets very confusing. You just have to think of them in in, in practical terms. So. I, I think the, you know, the, I think the thought experiment about the river, which Nagasena brings up, and the questions of Melinda, is a very um, very helpful thought experiment. Yeah. yeah, and every river is different. It has a, a different course, a different shape, um, maybe a different um, depth and, and breadth. Right. And I'm sort of bringing it back to the idea of uh, Anatman again, uh, and proposing that 
what Anatman wants to say is that our sense of self is dependently arisen, or our sense of ourselves, let's say, our, our sense of uh, who and what we are is dependently arisen, uh, rather than in any way uh, fixed. Right, right. Um, and, you know, say, let's say, let's think of a river, uh, the Mississippi, so we can name the Mississippi as a river and say that it's a river, but also recognize that it's constantly changing because uh, the water in it is uh, is always different. But what so that seems OK. But when we seem to apply that reflection to the self uh, or with, with the idea of an Atman, it seems more likely to say that the river doesn't exist i.e. there is no self, which seems excessive. And I'm kind of wondering why we do that, or some people do that. It, seem, yeah. it doesn't seem, it seems to me to uh, to overstep uh, dependent arising. Right. And, 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 and again, returning to the notion of a practical question, um, you might ask, you, you can you ask these two related questions. One of them is, is, is the one that you articulated earlier, which is what is the harm in thinking of thinking that there's a, a self? And you might also ask the question is what is the potential? What, what are the effects of believing that there isn't a self? Mm, yes, yeah. that's a good question. Yeah, 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 and I and just by the way, I'm not sure I know the answer to either of those. Um, uh, certainly not the complete answer. And, and my my question about you know the problem or what what's the harm in believing in in a self is genuine. I know you offered an answer to that, but wouldn't it be possible to have an idea that I don't know that there was some fixed self, but equally there was a lot about you that changed. So you can still change a lot of stuff, um, and that's the important work. Uh, but then there remains a, uh, a soul, let's say, uh, that persists through time and that soul will either be uh, liberated or not. I mean, a lot of people think that way, as you know. Um, mm -hmm. So what's wrong with it? I mean, the, the first answer that you gave, I think, was what's wrong with it is that it doesn't accord with the idea of or it doesn't completely accord with dependent origination. Uh, I think, with the idea of um, patterns and processes. But yeah. then I guess we could answer that by saying, well, so what? Maybe dependent origination doesn't need to apply to everything. Uh, maybe there's some things it doesn't apply to. Yeah, and, and, and again, historically, that certainly is the position of some schools of Indian thought. In the, in the Brahmanical tradition, that there are things that are not subject to um, dependent arising because they've always existed mm. and always will, and, and there's there's no mm. there's no changing them in any way. I suppose it does invite the question, like where do these souls come from? I suppose, and how do they arise? And uh, yeah, uh, and are they eternal? Which just invites a hell of a lot of questions. I agree, or yeah. I'm just thinking about it now. Whereas dependent arising doesn't require that level of uh, metaphysical explanation, partly because it's not really a metaphysical proposition, is it? It's, it's more of yeah, a kind of dis pragmatic description, really, to deal with day-to-day -day realities. It's not, it's not attempting some deep explanation of what, the, what ultimately is. Um, yeah. at least that's what I think um, and I think that's a good thing and so maybe that's where maybe that's where more the problem is that the idea of Atman is, is a metaphysical idea and it just then invites a whole load of other questions and then maybe you just end up getting stuck in all of that yeah the, the, in the in the um 
the thought exercise on on habit formation um, is on page 30, Waldron suggests that we think of habits in a similar, ask the same kinds of questions about habits that we asked about rivers. Yeah. That Nagasane asked. So he said, let's ask a, ser a similar series of questions as before. What are, where, where exactly is the habit? Is the habit in the action alone, in the act of drinking? No, that is not enough. It would not be a habit without the expected result and the desire for more. So he's talking about the, the, uh, the habit of drinking coffee. Um, that's the context in which he's talking about that we have a habit of routinely drinking coffee. So where, where exactly is that habit of drinking coffee? Um, so it's not enough that we just that we drink the coffee. It's what makes it a habit is that we have an expectation that drinking the coffee is going to somehow bring us, um, enable us to, to operate more efficiently, uh, to think more clearly, to stay awake, all of these things. But is the habit just the effect? Also, no, there would be no habit without the causal action and the intention driving it. Similarly, our reaction to the pleasure or displeasure arises because we know that our actions will lead to certain results. What constitutes a habit, therefore, is a pattern of interaction. So here we are once again with this pattern of interaction, rather than talking about a, a thing. Yeah. Um, we're talking about a pattern of interaction, the way it, its components repeatedly come together, neither any single element alone, uh, separately, nor in isolation. And then a very important kind of um, summary of this whole analysis of habits uh, is something that we um, that we that you've you've said a number of of, of times already, which is um, the the final paragraph on page thirty one, where he says, "But if habits don't exist in a substantial way, does this mean habits have no reality or effect at all?" Mark Twain famously said it was easy to quit smoking. He'd done it lots of times. The Buddhist point is that insofar as we cannot quit our habits, we're bound by them, and to that extent, we're unfree. We therefore cannot say that they have no effect whatsoever. Rather, they are real in the sense of having an observable, recurrent, experiential effect rather than a locatable, unchanging, substantive existence. Mm. That's, that, I mean, I, I, uh, I think that is said in such so with such clarity that I, I couldn't possibly uh, improve on it. <laughs> it's just it's it's a very very nice nice way of of putting this this entire question of um, of of saying that something doesn't exist as a thing doesn't mean that it doesn't have an experiential reality. Yeah, um, exactly. And then, well, that's the, it's a very, very important distinction, I think, uh, a distinction between a, an ontological substance and a, I don't know, a phenomenological reality, if you like, something that has a real effect. Um, yeah. the, the example of habit is, is really interesting, isn't it? Because it's very, very mysterious. Uh, yeah. Uh, because... I mean, you can't locate a habit anywhere. Uh, and in fact, the habit only comes into play when certain conditions uh, uh, provoke it or, or enable it. Um, I mean, let's take example of a gambling habit. Um, so it might be that you've got a gambling habit and you go on solitary retreat and you don't even think about gambling. Uh, but then you, uh, you come out of the retreat and then somebody says, oh, let's go on a holiday to Las Vegas. And you go on holiday to Las Vegas and... All of a sudden, woof, the uh, the gambling habit emerges because the the conditions that support it uh, 
have emerged uh, and it, it creates overall a quite a kind of subtle notion of what it means to to be a being really to be an experiencing being that our sense of ourselves uh, arises on the base of lots of different conditions some of which are internal and some of which are external or uh, that's what we say anyway uh, for now um, I'll say internal yeah. and external yeah. um, uh, and and we do have a, a very real sense of being us being ourselves which isn't delusional but it is dependently arisen well we've probably got lots of delusions but I mean the fact that you know I'm not really um how can I, what is non-delusional? It's not that we're not really having this conversation, for instance, we are, uh, but uh, to some extent, perhaps our ideas about ourselves and even each other are distorted. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I imagine you to be this incredibly kind of wise, uh, deep thinking uh, person, and I may not be right about that. Yeah, the, the, that, that, that is a serious delusion. <laughs> You should work on work on getting over that one. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so something that's interesting about um, talking this thought exercise on on habit formation is that um, that that is very much what at least the Abhidharma um, the Abhidharma uh, analysis of karma is all about habits what we would call habits you know the main effect of, of any action that we do I mean a karma after all is just an action the the um, the the vipaka the, the consequence of that action is that it reinforces the tendency to do that same action again, just as when a river flows, it increases the likelihood that water will flow that way again. Yeah, it, it, uh, it cuts the course deeper yeah. and eventually you get the Grand Canyon. Right, right. Mm. Which, and and yeah. and I think it's uh, it's it's in, in this in the same way that it's important to uh, to make a distinction between um, being affirmed by someone who has very low standards and being affirmed by someone who uh, who's a, who's a, a really skilled mentor. Um, it, it, there are also it's also important to reflect on the difference between having a useful habit and having a, a habit that's that's counterproductive and uh, one 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 way of looking at seriously counterproductive habits is to think in terms of addiction really I mean you were talking about gambling um, sometimes gambling isn't simply a habit that one has but it's something that becomes an addiction and, and the the um, I guess maybe one of the definitions of it, one of the criteria of what makes something an addiction is that repeating the behavior does not have the effect that one hoped it would have, and yet one does it anyway. So, um, yeah, I mean, an addiction to a drug or something uh, could, could, could be something that, be, that the taking of that drug becomes habitual to the extent that one can't actually can't function without it, and yet it's completely undermining one's sense of well-being and, and 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 having deleterious effects. So I imagine we'll we'll get we'll get quite a bit of discussion of of yeah there there there's a whole section in this on on karma later on. Um, the thought exercise on headaches and it yeah pretty, pretty much along the same lines. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um. So you know you would. Be, it would be foolish to say that there's no such thing as a headache. 
um, but it, ha it has the same features as a, as a habit that it arises out of conditions. And um, asking certain things about a headache are not particularly suitable questions and other things are. are. Um, is there anything that we've, we've that, that's all, all of the, that we've been discussing for the past quite a while now is, is in this section or this chapter on dependent arising. There's a lot there. Um, further sections that come up that we may want to just think for a minute about which of these we want to pursue in the time we have left. Um, there's a section on the middle way between existence and non-existence, something on the two truths, something on karmic potential and personal continuity, and then a section on what, um, what um, Waldron calls challenging the Cartesian theater. I think he's using a phrase um, yeah, it's uh, Daniel Dennett, is it? By yeah, by Dennett. Um, yeah, Daniel Dennett talks about the christen. He christened this term the the uh, the uh, Cartesian theater. Yeah, I think um, out of the rest of it, I mean, there is quite a lot of material. Um, but I, the bit that did catch my attention more was the initial presentation of the of the two truths uh, and. Uh, as found in the questions of King Melinda. Uh -huh. uh, and I actually underlined initially, there's a quote from Buddha Gosha, which I found myself uncomfortable with, uh, and I underlined it. So this is apparently from the Visuddhi Magga. There is suffering, but none who suffers. Doing exists, although there is no doer. Extinction is, but no extinguished person. Although there is a path, there is no goer. I just very much felt that at least translated in that way, it goes back to giving this idea that we don't really exist. You know, there's no one suffers, there's no doer. And I really wonder how helpful that is uh, as a way of talking. Uh, and then in what follows, it feels like the, the idea presented is, is quite a bit more subtle. Um, and actually, there's a, there's a quote from Nagasena, uh, who's the interlocutor of King Melinda. Um, this is at the bottom of page 37, and it's talking about the skandhas. It is because of materiality, feeling, apperception, karmic formations, and awareness that Nagasena exists as a mere designation. Right. However, in the ultimate sense, there is no such person that is found. So that feels a bit more nuanced, really, uh, and makes yes. it clear that yeah, what, what we think of as oneself is a mere designation. Um, so I don't know, it's a, con it's a convenience, if you like. Um, uh, but ultimately, there's no, yeah, there's, there's, there's no sub substantive self or, or fixed self behind or beyond that, which, right. which I'm quite happy with. But yeah, again, I'm, I'm wary of this apparent kind of negation of the phenomenological self, if I can call it that. Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree that 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 quotation from Buddhaghosa, which is um, which is a very you know it's it's a very key idea in in the um, in the uh, Visuddhimagga, um, and and most of the Visuddhimagga is in fact giving a much more nuanced understanding of each of those phrases than than is than is possible to give in, in, a, in a quatrain, you know, a, a little verse, there's suffering, but none who suffers yeah. Um, yeah. does. If, if, if you just stop there, if, if you didn't say anything further, then you'd think, oh, um, as, you, as, as you just said, it leads to the idea that there's, there's 
there's no person or something. Yeah, um, and, and in fact, the example of the chariot uh, actually lends support to what I'm saying because um, so they, so he deconstructs the chariot and to, to recognize that a chariot is made up of parts, but there is a chariot. There are chariots. Chariots are around. They, they don't have some fixed, unchanging essence, but if you see a chariot, you can think that's a chariot. And yeah, then you can then analyze it into component parts to recognize that, uh, in a way, the idea of chariot is a, a convenient designation or what have you. But it's not meaningless. Right. In yeah, fact, and, it's very useful. Yeah. And, and, yeah. On, uh, on page um, 37, um, Waldron writes, Melinda did, after all, arrive on something we call a chariot. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Existence and non-existence yeah. are not the only alternatives. Rather, Nagasena describes the middle way between these two extremes by emphasizing causal continuity within change and treating its multiple components as conventional designations. Mm. Um, That's good. Yeah, it's good. And, and just before that, the paragraph just before that, well, there, he, 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 this in the sutta, Waldron quotes the Sutanipata, which is quoted by Nagasena himself. Just as when the parts are rightly set, the word chariot is spoken. So when there are aggregates, it is conventional to say a being. Right. And Waldron says, Nagasena is, is introducing here the important distinction, which will later be reformulated in both Abhidharma and Mahayana Buddhism between an ultimate sense in which no unchanging self exists and a conventional sense in which it's necessary to and useful to speak of the relative existence of what we call a being. I think the questions of King Melinda really um, is, is one of the first texts I, I, I ever read. And uh, it's one that I've returned to many times. I just I find it actually very thought provoking uh, text. It has a wonder, wonderful illustrations in it. Um, a lot of these. I, I, one of my favorite ones is, is the, the one about, I think Waldron actually refers to it somewhere here, which is that if um, so, somebody carelessly lets a fire get out of control and the fire goes to a neighbor's property and damages the property, it would be it would just it would just be a, a kind of sophistry to say, well, the fire that burned down your thing was on your property, not my property. <laughs>